Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, May 14th, 2022. And today we are going to look at tomorrow's Old Testament and epistle readings. These, of course, are connected with tomorrow's um, gospel text, which is another text from John 16, the upper room, what do we call it, discourse, I guess? Uh, John 15, John 16, all of our readings uh, for the next couple of weeks will be taken from there. Tomorrow, uh, Jesus is going to teach us about, uh, begin to catechize us in regards to the Holy Spirit, um, and he will call him the paraclete, the paraclete, meaning the helper or comforter, it can be translated a number of ways. So that will be tomorrow. All right. Um, but the the uh, the day is called cantate. It comes from the uh, intro it, which uh, sing to the Lord a new song, right? So sing cantate. And uh, we'll be doing quite a bit of singing tomorrow. So there you go. All right. But we're going to look at the Old Testament and epistle, and you're going to see uh, perhaps how they inter- inter- interact or integrate within the day, or maybe not, as the case may be. Sometimes uh, they kind of have their own unique themes that don't necessarily uh, coincide with the gospel text. All right, so we'll check that out. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, I recognize that maybe uh, the title of the video isn't quite what it's supposed to be. So let's see if I can update those in real time as we're streaming. All right. That might might have worked. <laughs> All right. Oh, memory verse. One more time for the week. A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Romans 3, verse 28. All right. A man is justified, um, made right with God by deeds of are by faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ, apart from man's own action, that is the deeds of the law. Even man's actions according to God's holy law still does not make one right with God. Um, And we'll actually sing that tomorrow um, from the hymn of the day, right? Um, Now, I I think we talked about this earlier in the week, but it's worth reiterating today, which is that the deeds of the law are given by God, uh, and we usually categorize them with three chief uses, uh, or three uses, I should say. And the, the chief use is the accusatory use, um, sometimes called the mirror of God's law. It shows us our sin. It shows us that we cannot justif- be justified by our actions. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We need a Savior <laughs> to save us from our sins. Right, And he makes us right with God and we receive, as we receive him by faith. But you'll recall, recall that the law also has two other um, uses, or I, I prefer to say it this way, that the Holy Spirit uses God's word of law 
um, in two other ways, right? It, it's not our law, it's not uh, our word to be used, or it's not the law given to us to use as we see fit, but it's actually um, God describing um, what he does <laughs> by way of his law. So, for example, uh, we had the accusatory use being the chief use. That's the chief purpose that God gives his law on Sinai is because of transgressions to show us our sin. Uh, we also say that he does so, he has a civil use. And uh, there's actually an article in the in the sounder. I was just looking at it. And uh, this is from our, our local Buddhist. Yes, Random Lake has a Buddhist. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where he meets. Um, but he actually, he, he, well, he makes a number of errors uh, both politically and whatnot. All right, so it's here. I don't know if you can see that. Turn off the light. What does freedom of religion mean? This is from uh, Reverend Meru Doug Zber, Still Point Zen Center. So there's a Zen Center somewhere here in Random Lake. All right, I've, I've never taken the time to find it. Um, but he says, this is what he says at the end. Freedom of religion includes the right to be free from the imposition of your religious beliefs on me, just as it frees you from having my beliefs imposed on you. That's not actually, according to the Constitution, which he quotes at the beginning, that's not actually what um, the Establishment Clause um, actually says. <laughs> he, he says that there can be no state religion, but then he goes on to say that, that the imposition of religious beliefs cannot be, uh, cannot be, cannot be uh, imposed upon you. Well, this is, this is problematic, as, even as you listen to some of the most... Um, I say atheistic or agnostic people, they recognize that there needs to be uh, some kind of moral code or moral compass to guide the establishment of laws for a nation, laws that would govern. And to to make this radical disconnection between religion, you know, and what he means is, or what the Constitution means is the establishment of, of religious institutions, um, and but then to disconnect that from the life that we have as community uh, is a fallacy. It's not actually possible because we need a moral code to guide us. He's a Buddhist. His his Buddhist beliefs would guide how he well even talks about freedom of religion. All right. So uh, that is called the civil use, and that God uses His law. He, he gives us His law. He articulates, I should say, the law that is of nature uh, in such a way that. Um, it can guide uh, the laws of our of our nation, of our land, or our community. For example, you shall not murder. Well, he he might argue that you can't impose that religious belief on him. Well, how are we ever going to live together in community if <laughs> if we can't agree to what murder is? Um, same thing. Actually, our 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 nation has done a really terrible job with the sixth commandment: you shall not commit adultery. Um, no fault divorce, for example, um, is legal. And of course, adultery is is in permis- promiscuity and fornication. These are all now encouraged um, rather than actually discouraged uh, by our civil law. Um, so that one's terrible. You shall not steal um, unless you're, uh, I suppose, a sitting congressperson, um, and then you can use insider information to uh, manipulate people's well, steal from uh, <laughs> the trust of our nation. Uh, let's see, coveting, largely promoted. Um, and of course, uh, a day a day of rest around God's word that God's word would be would be given um, free course in our nation. Mm, he says we have freedom of religion. That's not actually true. We're not free to actually speak from God's word in any context. Um, and then, 
what what would be the second? Oh, calling upon God's name? Well, prayer is not acceptable in certain contexts. There was a recent Supreme Court decision about a coach um, who wanted to pray as a Christian with his team, and uh, that was discouraged because you're imposing, he, he was imposing his religious beliefs on his team. Not really, but uh, actually Supreme Court sh- um, struck down that ruling, so um, he was free to do so now again. Uh, and of course, having no other gods, that's not so much reflected in the civil estate. So usually when we talk about how God's law is used in the civil estate, that's limited to the um, the second table of the law. So um, from honoring parents and other authorities down through coveting. All right. So we've had two of the uses. And then the third use, the third way the Holy Spirit uses God's word of law given on Sinai is in particular um, to guide the Christian, right? The new man in Christ sees God's law as uh, actually his will and uh, will we'll joyfully um, follow after Jesus in the way that we should go. Uh, again, that's God the Holy Spirit working in and through us. It's not our work. It's not our action. He's using um, the word of law, actually, for the new man uh, who's given to us in baptism uh, to, li- to lead a life in, in keeping with, um, say, repentance, for example. All right, so um, this is very key. So the, God the Holy Spirit still uses the law, but he does not use it to justify us. That's the key. And it, it doesn't. Um, and even our obedience to it, even the new man's obedience to God's word of law, doesn't justify us. The new man is a gift um, received by faith through baptism. And of course, we're justified that is made right with God through the forgiveness of sins. That is um, not our doing, but, but Christ's doing alone. So there you go. That's all packed into one little verse. Pretty incredible, right? All right, good. Um, greet those who have checked in here. We've got Don and Karen on Facebook, Chris on Facebook, Karen's on Facebook, Defresh is on YouTube. Good to have you all with us today. And those of you watching later in the day, greetings to you as well. All right. Our psalm this week is Psalm 66. Um, this is also going to be our psalm for tomorrow between the Old Testament and Epistle. So um, is that right? No, that's not right. Um, this is, we'll have selections of Psalm 66, which will be part of our intro it for tomorrow. All right. There you go. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer, 
or removed his steadfast love from me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Uh, oh, before we do that, let's actually, uh, yeah, let's hear a meditation on uh, on the psalm. I think you'll find this actually quite helpful. And again, and I want to misspeak. Let me uh, confirm the position of Psalm 66 for tomorrow. <laughs> uh, my, my memory may be faulty. I had a long week. Um, let's see. No, I was wrong. No, I was wrong. It is the psalm that we will be praying um, between our readings, and, and the antiphon will be verse 5. So uh, to the theme of the day, verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. That will be the theme that we want to emphasize. So we'll pray this again tomorrow. All right. The reference to the drying up of the waters in Psalm 66 suggests that its original content or context was the celebration of the Passover and Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt, themes manifestly understood in the New Testament as types of the Christian Pascha. Quote, he turns the sea into dry land through the river. They will walk on foot. All right. Pretty obvious. We're talking about the Exodus, right? There is further reason for believing that Christian tradition has ever understood this psalm as referring to the mystery of Pascha, Pascha meaning Passover, meaning Paschal Feast, meaning Easter, right? Most Greek biblical manuscripts of it add a single word supplementing the inscription. To the psalm's Hebrew title, which reads simply, to the choir master, a song, a psalm, the majority of Greek manuscripts adjoin the word anastasios. Quote, of the resurrection, a reading uh, that is followed in the Latin tradition as well. Thus, according to general Christian manuscript tradition of Psalm 66, it is, quote, a psalm of the resurrection. How's that? By way of explaining this tiny augment to the text, a note in the critical apparatus of Alfred Rolf's edition of the Septuagint, which is up there on the shelf, usually use the digital version, but there we go, um, uh, in the apparatus, that's the uh, the critical notes at the bottom of the page, says that, quote, it is a Christian edition teaching that this psalm was sung on the Feast of the Resurrection in the second or the first century. And by way of confirming this judgment, Rolfs, a German Protestant, goes on to observe that the first four lines of Psalm 65 are still used in the divine liturgy for the Feast of Pascha. All right, so still use... Uh, in our celebration of the Pascha. Now, by the way, we are still in the Paschal season. Easter is seven weeks. All right. Um, I know it aggravates some people. It did last Sunday anyway. I got some flack. It's not Easter anymore. I'm like, I don't know what church you grew up in, but the church I grew up in, we have Easter for seven weeks. Now, there I am just being arrogant, I suppose. All right. All right. So, the first four verses are used in the divine liturgy for the Feast of Pascha. That's in the Eastern tradition. Indeed, they are. The opening antiphon of the Paschal Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is sung with each of the first lines of Psalm 66. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to his name. Give glory to his praise. Say unto God, how magnificent are your works. Let all the earth worship you and sing to you. Let them sing to your name, O Most High. One may further remark that the very next psalm, Psalm 67, is chanted with the second antiphon at that same Paschal Divine Liturgy. And that the next psalm after that, Psalm 66, uh, excuse me, Psalm 68, is sung 
I'm translating because their psalm numbers are different, is sung on the same day at the very beginning of the Divine Liturgy, even prior to the Great Litany, along with the uh, Troparion, which is a Greek um, liturgical song. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. Poof, that's nice. One is at at a loss to cite any other feast during the liturgical year when three psalms sequential in Holy Scripture are chosen for use in the divine liturgy. This is truly remarkable and significant. So, that'd be interesting to study. The works, quote-unquote, of God being celebrated in the psalm then, and for which we give thanks to his name, have to do with his accomplishing of our redemption in the Paschal Mystery, the death and resurrection of Christ, our Lord. These are the works of God celebrated in the divine liturgy. Quote, Having in remembrance the saving commandment and all those, those things that have come to pass for us, the cross, the grave, the third day resurrection, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming, your own of your own we offer unto you on behalf of all and for all. To which the congregation responds, of course, we praise you, we bless you, we give thanks unto you, O Lord, we pray unto you, O Lord. Our God, right? So this is in the Eastern tradition. This is a liturgy appointed for um, Easter, uh, or for the Feast of the Resurrection, um, and it comes from Saint John Chrysostom, so fourth century, right? And so they they use the same um, their their liturgy. They have consistent liturgies that they use, and then they have they have festival liturgies that are used on particular days of the year, right? So um, those days things are done a little bit differently than they might be done throughout the rest of you know, on an ordinary Sunday. That's not actually a bad tradition for us to have too, but um, we just don't have those. We uh, just add more things <laughs> to uh, Easter Sunday, for example. All right. Similarly, the Psalms references to deliverance from enemies should be read in the context of the drama of Holy Week and the redemption thereby won. This is a Psalm about the passage from death to life, for the enemies of the human race are sin and death. It is from these that Christ has set us free, restoring us to eternal favor with God. Quote, he, had, he set my soul in life and does not let my footsteps falter. For you, O God, have tested us. You have smelted us as, us as silver. You have brought us into a trap. You laid affliction on our back and caused men to lord it over us. We passed through fire and water, but you have brought us back to life. So it says in the Greek, now, to a place of abundance in the Hebrew. Hmm. Okay. You can understand it both ways, right? The sense and sentiment of the psalm, then, are identical to the victory canticles of Exodus 15, which we're actually going to talk about, uh, and Revolution 15, celebrating the destruction of the oppressive and death-dealing forces of Israel's, at Israel's deliverance from slavery. Psalm 66 may be thought of as another seaside psalm, but this sea is, quote, mingled with fire, Revolution, Revelation 5, verse 2, or 15, verse 2. Beside it stand the redeemed of the Lord, and they, quote, sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Revelation 15, 3. These are the works of our paschal redemption. Quote, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast, wrote St. Paul at Passover season, only two decades or so into Christian history. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. I had forgotten that Revelation 15 has them singing the song of Moses, um, which we have, right, um, from Exodus 15. Huh. So you see how um, in Christian usage, and according to Rolfs, already from the first or second century, uh, they understood this psalm as being a song of, of 
uh, the resurrection. So um, I think we talked about this last week, maybe on Saturday, how the New Testament doesn't change um, what has come before, but puts it in its proper context or light, right? Um, and we see that the Old Testament events are types or shadows or foreshadowing of the final deliverance um, from death that we have in Christ. Right? And so then uh, it's right for Christians to recast these psalms into uh, the life and ministry of Christ. All right, so that should help us tomorrow, um, you know, as we pray it again together as a congregation. Uh, speaking of uh, Exodus 15, the song of deliverance, um, here we have Isaiah's, I think, um, I don't know, retelling of that song, of that song, maybe? All right, see what you think. And then we'll, we'll hear a little bit of Luther on it. And in that day, you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has also, or he also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day, you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry and sh- cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. All right, you might know the canticle version of this. It's in the service of prayer and preaching. We uh, used to use that in the school for our weekly chapel. But now that we have daily chapel, um, our singing is constrained due to time uh, to the hymn for the week. But that's okay. So, um, Isaiah 12, right? Here's what Luther has to say about it. Here the prophet depicts the true and lawful worship and sacrifice of the New Testament and sets up, as it were, a certain hidden antithesis over against the Old Testament and its sacrifice, uh, which were many and varied. But in the New Testament, there was a single sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Thus, the Lord's Supper is called uh, Eucharist, that we may gather around it and give thanks to God. However, the best thanksgiving is the public confession before the world, where Christians who confess walk in danger. The prophet foresaw this future preaching and confession of the gospel, which did not take place in the Old Testament. In the voice of the gospel, God is glorified and preached in Christ. You will say, namely in the church, I will confess. This is what will take place in preaching. Nor shall anything else be heard in the church but the voice of praise and proclamation of God's blessings which we have received. This song is in conflict with all human wisdom and righteousness, which are our works and in which we seek our own glory rather than give thanks to God. Hence, to be pleasing to God is simply to acknowledge that we are the recipients of his blessings, not the donors. A Christian confesses that he was condemned and lost and that he has received from Christ everything that belongs to salvation and righteousness. All his own merits he considers worth nothing. This is the fullest and most perfect sacrifice, and it embraces everything in the Old Testament. The animals and cattle were slaughtered. Here our own wisdom and righteousness, our endeavors and works. Isn't that interesting, right? So the sacrifice of praise and prayer actually is a sacrifice of our own wisdom and righteousness, our own endeavors and works, connected again to the memory verse for the week, Romans 3, verse 28. Uh, because thou was angry with me, right? The church gives thanks not for wrath, that is present, but for wrath that has been taken away. For when the yoke of sin and death have been removed, then it will help to remember the evils. 
Paul says in Romans 1.18 and in 4.15 that the law brings wrath. We just talked about that. And from this wrath, the gospel frees when it is believed. Thou dost comfort me. This is all verse 1, by the way. I should make sure this is up. Yeah, it's right here. Verse 1. This, this is what he's dealing with. Thou didst restore me to the voice of rejoicing. In Luke uh, 7.48, your sins are forgiven. John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 5, verse 1 and following, for without the forgiveness of sins, there is no peace but the opposite. He is therefore speaking of public, not private, consolation through the gospel. All right, and then he keeps going on. Um, let's do verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. This is a description of, of the peace that comes after the forgiveness of sins has been received. Thus, the heart stands firm, and this is proclaimed. Now, I have someone on whom I may rely and in whom I may trust, to whom I may look, namely God, who no longer is angry and punishes, but saves from every danger and evil. Christians are surrounded by countless evils and varieties of death. Many are their enemies and detractors, but God provides wings so that they may fly away. Christ is with them and preserves them and does not destroy them. I will trust. This is the peace and safety of the conscience when it knows God as reconciled and Christ as Savior and Protector. But if it is still afraid of something, this is a temptation of the devil or a residue of the old man. And then here's to my point, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, this is really well connected with Psalm 66, right? Because, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. This verse is repeated from Moses, Exodus 15, verse 2. We just talked about it. Who gives thanks for the deliverance from Pharaoh, where the Jews make no boast of their own merits. Right? That's key. They don't boast in themselves when they are delivered from Pharaoh. Romans 3, verse 28, again, our memory verse. So now there shall be proclaimed only the blessings of God that make us safe from enemies. Therefore, the strength is my strength. That is, my kingdom, my house, the victorious power through which I have my enemies under my feet and shall trample the serpent underfoot, etc. My song, that is my psalm, and the subject matter of my psalm and song. I have no one to sing and chant about but Christ and whom alone I have everything. Him alone I proclaim, in him alone I glory, for he has become my salvation, that is, my victory. For thus the word salvation is often used in the scriptures for victory, as in 1 Samuel 14, 45. Our victory is Christ, and when we boast of Christ, we shall win. Satan and the ungodly hear the word of God, not willingly, but unwillingly. Yet this word consoles and lifts up the godly who are alarmed, either in the hour of death or in want and misfortune. So Elisha, for example, summoned a minstrel in 2 Kings 3, verse 15, and also 9, verse 13. Gideon struck down the enemies with the sound of the trumpet, Judges 7, 22. The evil of the eyes cannot stand um, the good light, but is forced to give into it. Satan is not thrown out by means of plans made by the flesh, but by means of the studying of the word of God. Isn't that something? All right, these are taken from Luther's lectures, um, I think late 1520s. Yeah, that looks right. 1527-ish. Um, I don't know how long. Early May 1527. It doesn't tell, tell us how long it took him. Um, these weren't published until, oh, they weren't available until 1914 in English. They weren't published in German until 1532. All right. So, uh, it was, and there were notes taken by a student. So I don't know if Luther actually um, endorsed them or not, but that's, there you go. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that really encapsulates Lutheran thought from 1530-ish. All right. 
And then our epistle for tomorrow, uh, one of Luther's favorite uh, epistles, that's a joke, uh, is James 1, verse 16 to 21. Yeah, Chris says, like this. Yeah, Luther has a way uh, when he's really rolling to, or he just, you know, he just says it so eloquently and brilliantly. But uh, of course, there, his criticism of a lot of Christian singing uh, might not go over so well with people who say, I sing of nothing but Christ. Hmm. Sometimes we sing a lot about ourselves and not a lot of Christ. Not tomorrow. All right. James 1, verse 16 and following. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. All right. So much like we just talked about uh, hearing from Luther, right? That every, that we, how did Luther say it again? Let me go back. He says, yes, uh, to be pleasing to God is simply to acknowledge that we are recipients of his blessings, not the donor. A Christian conde- uh, confesses that he is condemned and lost and that he's received, here's the key, from Christ, everything that belongs to salvation and righteousness. All his own merits he considers worth nothing. All right. Same thing here from James. So actually the two readings go pretty well together, right? Um, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, right? Of his own will, he brought us forth and here's the key, by the word of truth, not who, who, yeah, see, we should, we'll just fix the King James here. Who is the word of truth? That would be Jesus, right? So we are brought forth, we are given new life through Jesus. We are the first fruits of his creatures, right? Um, therefore, right, we receive with meekness, who? The implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That's Jesus. It's not I who live, but Christ who is in me, right? As Paul says, and here James is saying the same thing, right? Um, but of course, this could this the chief gift that the Father gives us um, is Jesus, right? But he also, of course, we say gives us all things, right, including our life and our well-being and whatnot. Um, hear what hear what the large catechism says about the gifts of God. Um, this large catechism well, is more Luther. A lot of Luther today, so it be. Um, this is large catechism on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. Listen to what he has to say. A person's entire heart and all his confidence must be placed in God alone and in no one else. For to have God, you can easily see, is not to take hold of him with our hands or to put him in a bag like money or lock him in a chest like silver vessels. Instead, to quote unquote have him, you shall have no other gods, right? Means that the heart takes hold of him and clings to him. It's the trust, faith. To cling to him with the heart is nothing else than to trust in him entirely. Sorry, I've read this too many times. I got ahead of him. For this reason, God wishes to turn us away from everything else that exists outside of him and to draw us to himself. For he is the only eternal good. It is as though he would say, quote, whatever you have previously sought from the saints or whatever, or for whatever things you have trusted in money or anything else, expect it all from me. Think of me as the one who will help you and pour out upon you richly all good things. End quote. See, here you have the meaning of the true honor and worship of God, which pleases God, and which he commands under penalty of eternal wrath. 
right? The first use, of, or the second use of the law, but the chief use, right? The accusatory use. The heart knows no other comfort or confidence than in him. It must not allow itself to be torn from him, but for him, it must risk and disregard everything upon earth. On the other hand, you can easily see and sense how the world practices only false worship and idolatry. Back to, uh, to our, our local resident Buddhist here. Nothing but false worship and idolatry. Uh, where did I leave off? There we are. For no people have ever been so corrupt that they did not begin and continue some divine worship. Everyone is religious. This is the point. Everyone has set up his special God, uh, whatever he has set up as his special God, whatever he looked to for blessings, help, and comfort. All right? So it could be government. It could be the stock portfolio. It could be um, heritage. It could be parents. It can be, um, could actually be the church um, in a kind of a, you know, I look to the church to give me you know, physical blessings. Right? Uh, it could be the welfare state, of course. There you go. And then Luther gives us some examples, right? But everybody is religious. It's just not always like, what do you want to say? The super spiritual kind, right? Um, but he's going to cite some of those. For example, the heathen who put their trust in power and dominion elevated Jupiter as the supreme God. Others who were bent on riches, happiness, or pleasure and a life of ease elevated uh, Hercules, Mercury, Venus, or other gods. Pregnant women elevated Diana or Lucina, and so on. So everyone made his God that interest to which his heart was inclined. In other words, they fashioned these gods after what their heart wanted, right? So even in the mind of the heathen, to have a God means to trust and believe. But their error is this. Their trust is false and wrong, for their trust is not placed in the only God, beside whom there is no, truly no God in heaven or upon earth. Therefore, the heathen really make their self-invented notions and dreams of God an idol. <laughs> Sorry, I keep getting ahead of Luther here. He was going to get there. Ultimately, they put their trust in that which is nothing. So it is with all idolatry, for it happens not merely by erecting an image or worshiping it, but rather it happens in the heart. For the heart stands gaping at something else. It seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils. It care, neither cares for God nor looks to him for anything better than to believe that he is willing to help. The heart does not believe that whatever good it experiences comes from God. Besides this, there is also a false worship and extreme idolatry, which we have practiced up till now. This is also still common in the world. All churchly orders are found on it, right? So then he's going to talk about the idolatry that's present within the church. Um, and, and that's with the, with the invented human traditions, all right? all right? We don't have a problem with traditions uh, until they become idols, <laughs> and then they must be abandoned. Uh, how do you diagnose an idol? It's when someone says, if that doesn't happen here, something that's not commanded or forbidden in God's word, if we don't do X, Y, or Z, this is no longer a Christian church. I think I had that, I remember having this in another parish where um, I said, if we don't have organ music, it just won't be the same church. <laughs> like, um, no, <laughs> organs are nice, but, uh, you know, that's still, that's really recent of all things, right? All right. Or if we don't sing X, Y, Z hymn on, on Easter, it's not Easter for me. Or same thing with Christmas. Just really. Oh, that's the heart. All right. Um, but this last point that he made, the heart does not believe that whatever good it experiences comes from God, despite what James says right in front of us, right? So you notice how um, James, speak, the apostle James here speaking, actually it's the brother of Jesus, James, uh, speaking on behalf um, of God is telling us what we don't believe. 
We don't actually believe that every, every good gift and perfect gift comes from above. Not our flesh, right? Not the sinful, sinful man. We believe that we have to pull up our bootstraps. If anything's going to happen, it's, we're going to be the ones who have to do it. Right? And in a secular sense, in an earthly sense, that's, that's true. Except it's not. <laughs> it seems true. Uh, but God is actually using us instrument, instrumentally right, um, to care not only for our own well-being, but the well-being of those whom have been placed under our charge, like our family, uh, and for the, for the benefit of our neighbors. So even there, God is working good gifts through in and through us vocationally, right? Those gifts are um, from him too. So uh, stop taking credit for everything, right? And give God credit. Uh, that's the best way to go through life. Even, even if you do something quite impressive or dramatic, um, uh, give God the credit for it. That's why I actually like the baseball players. I think it's kind of, it is kind of um, probably superstitious for many of them, but, and yet, it is a reminder, you know, like when they when they uh, have a good at bat, you know, that they make the sign of the cross and they look toward heaven. Um, it's actually the right it's it's the right posture to have in all things, is to begin and end each day thanking God, uh, both for uh, what He is going to give you to do and what He has done through you. Mm. So nice. All right, our table of duties, our catechism um, for this week is to workers of all kinds, Ephesians six. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. We pray. Heavenly Father, your Son became a slave for us to redeem us from all sin. He worked for our salvation, though we did not deserve it, and he submitted to your will with all his heart. Forgive us all dishonor and disrespect toward our earthly masters, and grant us the grace of your Son, that we might serve in our life's work with faithfulness toward you, and in love and obedience for those we are called to serve, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, uh, you can see the hymn for the week uh, in front of you. I actually uh, wanted to share you share with you a little bit of uh, the background on this hymn. Um, and make kind of a point. <laughs> we'll see. The inspiration for this hymn dates back over 200 years before George Ratcliffe Woodward, which you see there in the credits down below, very small, 1848 to 1934, actually wrote it. The precursor text was a Dutch Easter hymn, probably first published in 1672. Um, it was headed, quote, Paschal hymn concerning the necessity of Christ's resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, 16, 17, and 18, etc. Fred Kahn has translated the original five stanza Dutch hymn as Many Fruits We Gain, right? 1985. It's a different hymn. Oh, the original hymn, the Dutch hymn. This hymn was introduced into the Missouri Synod with the publication of Worship Supplement 1969, right? So you wonder why, how come I don't know this one too well? Uh, we haven't sung it since, we've only been singing it since 1969. And maybe you actually were part of a congregation that didn't use the worship supplement, which was a, an addition of hymns, many of whom, uh, many of which you actually know quite well. This is the feast, for example. Um, I'm trying to think. A lot of the Easter hymns um, that, that were to supplement um, the Lutheran hymnal, you know, about 28 years later. You'll probably see a supplement to Lutheran service book in the next 10 years or so. I would imagine. The original Woodward text was gently updated. Hath to has, that to who, 
ne'er to not, his to its. The most significant alteration of the original was the transposing of stanzas two and three. Perhaps this was done to place the sequence of events in chronological order, the death of the believer, the body's rest in the grave, and then the walking of the dead on the last day. But anyway, uh, coming from a, an old Dutch Easter hymn, now here's the thing that I thought was interesting. Well, I was looking at the, at the source, um, and it came from uh, George Woodward. His, his, this little hymnal that he published was called Carols for Easter and Ascension Tide. All right. And then the, um, I'm looking here, the, I think the Dutch name was something similar, actually. Oh, yes. Um, then there's also another one, the Cowley Carol Book for Christmas, Easter, and Ascension Tide. I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, this is an Englishman, but um, Anglo Catholic, Church of England, uh, Victorian era, right? And yet he's writing a book of carols for the whole festival half of the year. So we have Christmas, Easter, and Ascension Tide. Carols for Ascension, carols for Easter. You know Christmas carols, but there's carols for the whole season. This is a carol. This is you know the kind of song that you go about singing um, throughout your community, or maybe in uh, you know like a choral carol to be sung uh, in visitation, you know, of the the homebound or the or those in nursing facility or whatever. Right? Um, we don't think about. It. I mean, we think of it as a hymn, but it's really he calls it a carol. Ah. And so you'll see some of the the form, right, with that with that refrain, right, as we do with carols. Well, that's kind of neat. All right. Anyway, let's sing it. Lover of souls from ill, 
So you can obviously hear in the chorus, you can hear that 1 Corinthians 15, 16, 17, 18 text. Huh? Um, I found actually the, the the precursor hymn, the translation that's mentioned here of the Dutch hymn uh, by Fred Kahn. It's uh, copyrighted, but uh, it's available on the, actually on the publisher's website. So you can read the text to you. You'll see the, the parallels here. How many fruits we gain by Jesus's dying off proffered when he, his life, his pain upon the tree had offered. Yet would our gain be small and vain his costly giving, if, after all, Christ Jesus was not living. Good. Unsure would be our way and dismal every morning, were it not that every day begins like Easter dawning. We are on earth at home, redeemed from sin and crying, for Jesus has become the firstfruits from the dying. How barren life would be, how fruitless our devotion, when all the guilt we feel is deeper than the ocean. How could the human race endure this burden longer had not in evil's face Christ proved to be the stronger? This is a great Easter hymn. The world of nature shows that life must have an ending. A nobler being grows from death to life ascending. This lesson cannot be, can be read in planting seed and sowing, in grain that grows for bread. Praise God for all we owe him. Now that's an allusion to uh, Paul himself from 1 Corinthians 15. The grain of seed must fall to the ground and die. All right, Jesus. God's word invites and wakes from death through self-denial, and by the hand God takes us through defeat and trial. Let every life be free from all that would enslave it, for risen again is Christ who came to earth to save it. Yeah, not bad. So again, that's uh, based on the original Dutch hymn uh, from around 1672. Probably not Lutheran because I'm not catching any sacraments, uh, but it does confess Christ, and it does a pretty good job confessing 1 Corinthians 15. So there you go. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Uh, let's see. I don't think we have a commemoration for today. Let me make sure. Nope. All right. So let us continue with prayer. Our collect for the week. 
Almighty God, you show those in error the light of your truth so that they may return to the way of righteousness. Grant faithfulness to all who are admitted into the fellowship of Christ's church, that they may avoid whatever is contrary to their confession and follow all such things as are pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray today for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray in Thanksgiving today with Karen, who celebrates her birthday, with Lisa and Justin, who celebrate their baptism. We pray for the households of our church, especially uh, Dick and Corey, Timothy, Willis, Jeannie, Graydon, and Norman Sandy. We pray for those ill, receiving treatment, or recovering, especially Marcella, Bev, Kelsey, Amanda, Dan, Timothy, Merlin, and Jim, and Mike. Pray for our homebound, Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, and Paul. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially uh, the work of Lutherans for Life. We pray for the preservation and increase of faith, and we continue to pray with the Pfeifers um, at the death of Don's brother, Dale. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Both parts. There we go. Good to have you with us here for the Congregation of Prayer uh, on this Saturday. You can join us tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m. here in person for divine worship with, um, uh, with for the Sunday of Cantate. We'll be doing lots of singing, and it'll be a, a joy to be able to have Cantate a Sunday of song with an organist. Ethan's back. We had him last week. Uh, that's really, um, I think, uh, well, something I, I hope that as a congregation we can be intentional about developing over the span of years. Um, you know, a future generation of musicians that can uh, serve uh, in that way in our congregation to help lead our song. All right? Um, and I have ideas about that. So uh, anyway, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Lord be with you again, and uh, we'll see you again tomorrow for Divine Service. See you then. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church, Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.